Hello and welcome to episode 228 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Much has been made recently of the phrase, she was just walking home, after the tragic death of Sarah Everard as she walked home from a friend's house. Sadly, as you are only too well aware, Sarah Everard's case is not unique. There are a number of examples of women just walking home who never made it to their destination. One such woman was 26-year-old Avril Dunn, who was just walking home from a local pub, The Heron, in Luton, Bedfordshire. Today, I'm going to tell you her story. A huge thank you to Hayes, host of Podcast She Wrote, for the research and writing of this episode. By now, you may know that I'm running live events online, UK True Crime Live, with Chantelle from the Lady Justice podcast. This Thursday at 7.30pm, we're talking to the last of our initial five guests. And this week, I'm really looking forward to it. It's Mike from the Murder Mile podcast. The format is me and Chantal chatting to Mike for 15-20 minutes or so, and then it's over to you to ask your questions. It's going to be a lot of fun. Tickets are free, so get yours now. Just search Crowdcast Adam Lloyd, or head to UKTrueCrime.com to get your tickets. I'll see you on Thursday. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially those new members of this exclusive club. That is Fiona O'Sullivan, Rusty Spoon, Gemma Howarth, Lauren Street, Kirsten Montgomery, Sarah Gottwick and Grace Royal. Thank you all so much for your support, which is much appreciated. Remember to send me your mailing address so I can post you some welcome goodies. If you're not a member yet, come and be part of our community and access loads of bonus material, all for less than a second-hand face mask, at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. That's better, H-E-L-P. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I know that during lockdown, I've been really struggling with my job in HR, and also spending time with my family, feeling I'm not really devoting enough time to either. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And once you've decided to go ahead, there's no waiting around. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Let's be clear that BetterHelp is not a crisis line, it's not self-help. It's professional counselling done securely online. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit feeling self-conscious in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. What's more, it's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. Head to betterhelp.com slash truecrime, that's better H-E-L-P, and join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and UK True Crime podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash truecrime. Let's play our guest of the month and year game to set the context for today's story. The UK number one was Dancing in the Streets from David Berry and Mick Jagger. Top of the charts in the US was a man with very impressive hair, John Parr, with St Elmer's Fire, remember that one? And in Australia, The top-selling single this year was USA for Africa with We Are The World. 
This month saw a US-French expedition locate wreckage of the Titanic off Newfoundland. Eight people were killed as a roof collapsed in a Brussels supermarket. The Brixton riots took place after a woman was shot by police. One person died in the terrifying riots. 50 were injured and more than 200 were arrested. Riots followed in Handsworth, Birmingham, with the final casualty toll standing at 35 injuries and two deaths. And Jeremy Bamber was re-arrested upon his return to England after two weeks on holiday in France and charged with the five White House farm murders. Did you guess the month and year? It was September 1985. Today's story is from Luton, a large town about 30 miles northwest of London. If you are of a certain age, you may well first have heard of Luton in Lorraine Chase's song about the airport. Remember that? Recent press about Luton has not always been positive, and the closure of the Vauxhall manufacturing plant in 2002 had negative effects for the town, leading to increased unemployment and deprivation. Avril Dunn wasn't born in Luton, she was born in Glasgow in 1960, but the family relocated to Luton when Avril was just 11 years old. They soon settled into their new life, and Avril, who was a shy and a quiet girl, soon began dating, as you do at that age. In 1980, when Avril was aged 20, she got married. But sadly, it wasn't a happy marriage, it didn't last, and the couple divorced just three years later. Following the breakdown of her marriage, Avril struggled with her mental health, and she also suffered from anorexia, becoming obsessed with controlling her weight, despite standing just 4 feet 10 and having a very small frame. Avril was hospitalised in 1982 for treatment and she made some progress in increasing her weight. Those of you with experience of anorexia or spending time with someone suffering will know just what a difficult condition it is to overcome and it was a constant struggle for Avril to maintain a healthy weight for the rest of her life. After her divorce, Avril moved in with her cousin David. The situation suited them both as they got on well and they enjoyed each other's company when they were home together. Avril would go to the local Heron pub by herself a couple of times a week, and most Saturdays to catch up with other people there. Saturday the 14th of September 1985 was just a normal day. Avril and David ate their dinner in front of the TV, probably watching Bob's Full House on BBC One, or The Price is Right on ITV. And at 7.45pm, Avril told David that she was popping out to the Heron. He wished her a good evening and she headed out as she had done so many times before. Avril's walk to the pub would take her past the Spinney, which was a small woodland area by Henge Way to the northwest of the town centre. Avril knew there had been two recent sex attacks in the Spinney, so being conscious of her personal safety, Avril kept to the perimeter rather than taking the shortcut through the trees. From here, Avril walked towards the tower blocks on the Marsh Farm estate. You might have heard of this estate before. It was in the news in July 1995 after two days of rioting by up to 500 people caused almost £20,000 worth of damage. It was thought by some residents that the unrest began when the police arrested a 13-year-old boy who had absconded from a young offenders institution. People were upset at the heavy-handed tactics of the police in dealing with the child. 
Other residents insisted it was planned by outsiders who had travelled in from other areas. Either way, Luton Town Council insisted the Marsh Farm Estate was not a problem area, but the area was certainly a problem part of town by 2013, when armed police were called in to patrol the estate after three gang-related murders and 11 shootings. Going back to the 14th of September 1985, at 8pm Avril arrived at the Five Rings Tower Block from the Marsh Farm Estate to call in on a family she knew who lived there. Avril would often drop by, seemingly finding excuses to do so. The family didn't mind, they loved seeing her, they enjoyed her company. They felt that Avril was rather lonely and did not have any close friendships. So casually popping over to borrow something was her way of having some form of social interaction outside of the pub. On this occasion, Avril asked to collect a couple of video cassettes a family member had said she could borrow. They handed the rental videos over and said goodbye. Do you remember what video rentals looked like in the 80s? They were like bricks. So after a few minutes, there was another knock at the door. The friend recalled saying, That will be Avril again. And she was right. Avril was still holding the video cassettes and smiling. She asked if she could collect them another time. as she was on her way to the pub and she didn't want to lose them or damage them as they were too big to keep in her handbag. The friend agreed, took the videos back and said goodnight once more. After leaving Five Rings, Avril walked past the lock-up garages on the estate, through the underpass, arriving at the Heron at about 8.30pm, where she was seen shortly after sitting by the pool table on her own with a drink. At around 8.45pm, a woman saw Avril visibly upset in the lady's toilets and offered her a tissue. The woman recalled later that the conversation she had with Avril was rather strange. She asked Avril if she was upset because she'd rowed of a boyfriend. Avril shook her head. Then she looked up at the woman and asked, Do you like to watch videos? The woman was confused at this response and asked Avril if it was a row of a husband, not a boyfriend. Avril looked down again and said, I was married once, but not anymore. Without wishing to read too much into it, this encounter appears to highlight the depth of the loneliness that Avril must have felt, as a pub toilet is not the most conducive to trying to arrange a movie night of a stranger. In a Rochdale sauna, maybe. At 9.45pm, Avril was talking to a group of men at the bar. She told them she'd been jogging that day, and they were joking with her, telling her that she was not to try and lose any more weight, but to drink a few pints of Guinness instead to build herself up. But rather than the black stuff, Avril was bought a Malibu and lemonade at the bar by one of these men. One of them asked Avril if she wanted to play darts and she agreed. Another regular who was in the bar that evening said that he would keep score. Interviewed later, he said, I don't think any of us knew her at all, basically. I mean, I think most of us felt sorry for her in the sense that she always seemed to be alone. We always treated her as one of the lads. We used to pull her leg, play darts with her, but she never spoke about things in general. The landlord of the pub was also later interviewed and he said she usually stayed until 11 o'clock on Saturday nights and walked home with three or four men she knew, but that night we sort of missed her about half past ten. 
two customers saw someone that looked like Avril leave the pub with a taller man. They got into a white car with a spoiler and sports wheels, turned on the headlights and sat talking for a short while. Later that evening, about half a mile away, a white sports-type car was seen driving erratically before performing a U-turn in the middle of the road and driving towards the Marsh Farm estate. The body of Avril Dunn was discovered in Spinney Woods near her home at 7.30am the next morning by a man walking his dog. Avril had received multiple blunt force injuries to her head, neck and chest and a serious sexual assault had taken place. Avril had been strangled and the chest injuries that she'd received were consistent with someone stamping on her. Avril was found partially dressed and the remainder of her clothes and the contents of her handbag were found three days later at the bottom of a bin at the nearby flats. There were traces of semen on the recovered items. The town was shaken that this young petite woman who had hurt nobody was murdered in such a horrendous and brutal way. When she died, Avril weighed just five stone. Detective Superintendent Mel Thompson was in charge of the investigation and she gave a description of the man seen with the woman who looked like Avril Dunn and appealed for witnesses to come forward to see if they could identify him. We know he is 20 to 24 years of age. He's 6 foot to 6 foot 2 tall, medium build, with light collar length hair brushed to the right, blue eyes and clean shaven. He was wearing a light coloured top and darker trousers. Considerable police resources were devoted to the investigation and there was significant publicity about the crime, including a reconstruction on the true crime enthusiast's favourite programme, Crime Watch, where the men who had seen Avril at the bar that night played themselves. Although the police acted swiftly and appeared to follow every lead they had, they were unable to get the break they needed and find that all-important piece of evidence that would identify her killer and lead to a conviction. Inevitably, as time went on, other priorities arose for the local police force, and the case became unsolved and inactive, but it was not forgotten. It was not until 1998 that advances in forensic technology meant that scientists were able to extract a DNA sample from the clothing that Avril was wearing on the night that she was murdered. The incident room was reopened, and the preserved exhibits and witness statements were trawled through once again. When researching my forthcoming book on Angus Sinclair, the detectives I spoke to whose unsolved investigations had been later reopened due to advances in DNA, all told me they had one fear. That was that one of the original suspects had in fact been guilty and got away with it. And in Avril's murder, this was the case. The original suspects were revisited and detectives were soon able to confirm that the semen that was found belonged to one of them. It was a married father of four, a roofer, Duncan Jackson, then 37, making him just 23 at the time of the murder. He was arrested on the 14th of September 1998, exactly 13 years after the murder of Avril Dunn. Jackson had a track record for theft and burglary, but no previous convictions for violence, although his wife admitted when questioned 
that she had suffered significant domestic abuse at his hands. When initially questioned, Jackson told police he'd seen Avril at the Heron that night. Incredibly, Jackson was in fact the man seen in the Crime Watch reconstruction, playing himself buying Avril and Malibu and lemonade. But he denied that he'd killed Avril, insisting that he'd gone home to his wife that evening. He said the semen could be explained away by the fact that Avril had performed a sex act on him three days before. He'd not said so at the time, as he didn't want his wife to find out. This of course seemed highly unlikely, and Jackson's defence was swiftly disproved. Advances in technology meant that police could now piece together what had happened after Avril left the pub. They established that Avril had begun walking home when she was approached by Jackson. He persuaded her to accompany him to some local sheds, presumably to indulge in some form of sexual activity. Traces of bitumen found on Avril's clothes were linked to one of the sheds, and it was here where they discovered a knife matching slashes on her t-shirt. In a particularly uncomfortable moment in the Crime Watch segment, presenter Nick Ross and Detective Superintendent Mel Thompson can be seen handling the clothing whilst discussing what the black matter around the neckline of the vest-type top and zipper of the skirt could be. Clearly, contamination of evidence was not such a consideration in the 80s. Jackson was charged with Avril's murder. The jury at Reading Crown Court was told that Jackson and Avril knew each other and both regularly played darts in their local pub, the Heron. They heard how Avril was brutally beaten and sexually assaulted by Jackson, with evidence that he'd stamped on Avril not just while she was alive, but also after she had died. He then left her severely battered body in the woods. The prosecutor said, Something went wrong in that shed and Mr Jackson attacked her. His attack was ferocious and he killed her. Quite what happened, the prosecution could never quite be sure. They suspected that due to the injuries, it suggested an outburst of anger. So maybe Avril may have taunted him sexually, or maybe she'd refused to comply with his sexual demands. Jackson continued to deny murder, but the jury didn't believe him, and he was found guilty by a 10-2 majority, and sentenced to serve life with a minimum of 15 years on the 27th of January 2000. Despite the guilty verdict, Jackson continued to protest his innocence and appealed against the sentence imposed. During his appeal, it was argued that Jackson should serve less than 15 years on the grounds that had he been arrested immediately after Avril was killed, the tariff imposed would then have only been 12 years imprisonment. And further to that, Jackson had made a quote, exceptional progress in custody. But the lack of remorse due to denial of guilt meant that Jackson was still deemed at a medium risk to society. Much was made of Jackson's personal development whilst in prison. With his achievements being listed as, completed the accredited enhanced thinking skills program, completed an anger management course, GCSEs in maths and English, adult literacy qualifications, level one food hygiene, blah blah blah, alcohol awareness, relating skills course, bio cleaning course, participating in half marathons, raising money for charity, and rowing a thousand kilometres as part of a team to raise money for children in need. Whilst this is all very fine and admirable, one cannot help but wonder 
what Avril might have gone on to achieve had she been given the chance. Not really exceptional, is it? The appeal judge agreed. He said, when comparing Mr Jackson's progress to that of other life sentence prisoners at this stage of their sentence, one can assume that his progress has been very good. However, it's no more than one would expect from a life sentence prisoner at this stage of his sentence. In conclusion, Mr Jackson has shown throughout his sentence a willingness to engage in the life sentence process and has progressed to the stage expected of him. This should not be seen as exceptional progress, however, in comparison with other lifers. It should be seen as very good. So there we are then. Jackson's wife died in 2007 while he was still in prison. He was given permission to attend her funeral, but there was a dispute over the level of escort offered in order for him to attend, so he did not go. We must assume that Jackson is now a free man. So what do you make of what we've heard today? This is a particularly sad case, isn't it? As Avril was, it would seem, a very vulnerable, lonely young woman who just wanted some company and Jackson heartlessly took advantage. The police had suspected Jackson almost immediately, but the technology needed to prove his guilt or innocence, but guilt in this case, was just beyond reach at that time. You've got to wonder how Jackson felt when he took part in the reconstruction, knowing that he was the tall, medium-billed man with collar-length, light-coloured hair being described. Refusing to take part would have raised suspicion, so instead we saw him hiding in plain sight. And we heard about the progress he made in prison. Maybe he is now fully rehabilitated and has remorse for what he did. Maybe he's living near you. I wonder how you'd feel if you found out that Jackson was your neighbour. The Heron pub has since closed down, but there's an active community on social media where regulars exchange stories of lost nights out. In the midst of this, I just kind of hope that Avril's last night out there will never be forgotten. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. Huge thanks again to Hayes, the host at Podcast She Wrote, for research and writing this story. To talk about this case or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please join 60,000 or so of us at the Facebook group. And to support the show and listen to the bonus episodes and catch all the other behind-the-scenes content, of which there's a lot, please join us at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. So that is all for me for this week. I know some of you listen to True Crime podcasts to go to sleep. Me, I might just listen to the latest Kings of Leon album. I think that will send me to sleep or anyone to sleep soon enough. So on that tedious bombshell, that's all for me until next week. So in the meantime, please do take it easy. And despite all the others, I know, I know what it's like. Do stay classy. Cheerio.